everyone and a happy new year to you all. Welcome to the first Anenco podcast of 2021. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing about embedding your green plan within your trust. And we're going to focus in on clinical engagement with your green plan today. So before we get started, I just want to spend a few minutes following up on some recent developments that have happened since our last webinar with the Health Estates Journal. So on Friday, the 18th of December, uh, the SDU, Sustainable Development Unit, have announced that they're going to be looking at a revised green plan guidance, which is planned to be published in March 2021. So that's right around the corner. And I just wanted to bring your awareness to that and mention that they are looking for consultation and they do want people to help to inform the development of that new guidance. So if you're interested in taking part, would you please go and contact greener.nhs at nhs.net. They've also got an online form, so I'd encourage you to go and fill that in, make your views on sustainability in the NHS known to the SDU if you haven't already via other routes. So the aim of this consultation is for them to incorporate the recent net zero NHS documents goals into the guidance that's available. But they're also going to be looking at the SDAT tool and whether this is of use to trusts. And I know a number of trusts use this as an annual benchmark. So it is something that you should give your feedback on and whether you find this a useful tool or not. Now, it is going to be coming offline temporarily as part of this review in February. So if you do need this for your end of year, I suggest you download a copy so that you can fill in your current performance against one. It's possible because of this that some of the questions I'm going to talk about in detail later on may change and be revised to be more relevant to the current view of sustainability in the NHS. So bear that in mind while we're talking through them. These may not be the exact questions and targets that you'll look at when you come to do a green plan in a couple of months time but they should still be relevant. So finally, before we get to today's topic, I just want to give you a quick recap that we've had a recent webinar, which was done in conjunction with the Health Estates Journal. And that was from Green Plan to Green Action. If you haven't already seen that webinar, the web address is to access it is included in the description for this podcast. And I'd suggest you go away and give it a listen and a watch before coming back to this one, because it does give the broader picture. And that webinar focused on the fact that green plans should be delivered by the whole of an NHS trust and not sit solely within the estates department's responsibility. In order for a green plan to be successful as a working document and not just a compliance piece, you need to have engagement from a wide range of stakeholders within the trust. And that means estates, finance, procurement and your clinical teams. That's because so many of the measures for success in terms of sustainability are actually outside of the control of the estates department. So things like from a procurement perspective, you'd need to drive more sustainable purchasing from suppliers. And the decisions that procurement make are going to impact on the life cycle costs and the carbon of buildings when new builds and refurbishments are happening. An example within the ESTAT is the statement that we have a clear set of, of sustainability aims and objectives that are scaled and applied to all capital projects and major refurbishment. And there's more from them that actually talks about embodied carbon, minimum access to green space and natural capital. So when you're talking to a procurement team, they may not have the expertise to be able to craft the questions in order to meet that goal. They may need support from the estates team, which means that we need to be working much closer together as teams across a trust and not just in our own silos. Similarly, with finance, you're going to need finance to be able to look at CapEx availability to try and reduce the OPEX costs in the longer term of a new build or a refurbishment. So implementing sustainability measures from day one when they're looking at a new building will give OPEX cost savings, but there may be a CapEx impact from that, which they need to understand and account for and put those savings in the longer term against that initial outlay. 
choices that can be made like switching off CHP sets, moving to electric heating would actually have pretty big financial impacts on the trust. And the benefit of your current CHPs might need to be ring fenced for a period of time so that that funding can then be used in future on low carbon measures. If you manage that, you need finance to be on board. They have to have sign off on those kinds of decisions and strategic thinking. So I've gone a bit off topic and I'm going to come back to the theme of today's podcast. Um, We're going to be talking mostly today about clinical and how a significant proportion of the carbon impact of trusts sits within the clinical team's sphere of influence. And they're not a team that have necessarily been embraced and talked to and worked with on sustainability in the past in many trusts. And we might find that estates don't have very many links into the clinical team. So today we're joined by Frank Swinton, who's the climate change lead for West Yorkshire and Harrogate Health and Care Partnership. And he's going to be providing us with some advice and examples of his experience in driving sustainability within the clinical environment. So, Frank, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you've come to be working in sustainability in the NHS? Um, uh, Yeah, so it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll I'll make sure I'll skip over the boring bits. Um, So um, I currently have two jobs, each one half time. One is as a consultant in anaesthetics and critical care at Airedale Hospital in West Yorkshire. Um, And the other is as the climate change lead for our West Yorkshire and Harrogate Health and Social Care Partnership, uh, which is our local ICS, Integrated Care System. Uh, And I got interested actually about 15 years ago when I worked for the British Antarctic Survey as a doctor. Uh, and I happened to spend a year um, on a research station about 900 miles from the South Pole where the hole in the ozone layer was discovered. And it turns out that if you lock people up with some climate scientists in a wooden box on the ice for a year, they learn a little bit about climate science, whether they like it or not. Um, When I came back, I became interested in the effect that I could have, first of all, on my own private life, but then after a year or two, realized that my impact at work was much, much greater than my impact at home. Uh, and so I did what I could uh, in my own time, mostly for, for many years, um, met some great people, had some great wins, had a lot of frustration. Uh, and then in 2017, I took a sabbatical and went to Sweden for a year where I, I studied a master's in strategic leadership towards sustainability um, before returning back to Yorkshire and then took up this post as climate change lead. Uh, and it's been a, an amazing roller coaster of, of learning and good people and good work. And I'm having a lot of fun and I hope uh, changing things for the better. Well, that's that's quite a career, Frank, um, and we're really glad that to have you here and have your level of expertise to talk to us. So let's begin. There's a lot of targets that sit within the clinical team, such as reducing the impact of single-use plastic, looking at meter-dose inhaler emissions, and then anaesthetic gases, which we're going to focus in on in this podcast. If you look at one of the key goals that was expanded on in the operational and planning guidance from 2020 to 2021, it states that to reduce the carbon footprint associated with anaesthetic gases in line with the long-term plan commitments, 
by appropriately reducing the proportion of desflurane to sevaflurane used in surgery to less than 20% by volume. And that's what we're going to talk about here in quite a lot of focus, as it's one of Frank's key areas of expertise. So Frank, could I hand over to you to tell us a little bit about why reducing desflurane is so important and how this particular issue has shaped your own involvement in sustainability? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Beth. Um, so desflurane is, a, is an anaesthetic vapour which is used to keep people asleep. And there are several of these vapours that we have readily available. Um, almost every hospital in the country will have both sevaflurane and desflurane. Um, previously, hospitals have used a drug called isoflurane. That's now largely out of use. But sevaflurane and desflurane, both very commonly used. I think the most important message that I'd like to get across to you is that there is no clinically significant difference between using desflurane and isoflurane. And I know that some of my anaesthetic colleagues might disagree with that statement, but there is pretty good evidence that although desflurane is a faster drug in terms of the time between turning the drug off and the patient wakening up, that difference doesn't make a clinically significant difference. So the difference is on average between, depends which study you look at, but between five and 12 or 13 minutes. And therefore, it's not going to enable you to do an extra case on, a, on your all day operating list. So you're not gonna be able to do four cases instead of three or five cases instead of four. And therefore, it doesn't make a clinically significant difference. So that's a really, really key point. That's the good. other key point, sorry, Beth, go ahead. I was going to say that's quite interesting because I, I imagine that a lot of people within estates departments won't know this. And if there are other anaesthetists out there that think that there may be a clinical difference, having that information to hand is going to be really useful for them to actually have informed conversations. Um, yeah. So um, one of the problems is that, of course, if you look hard enough, you'll find data to support your hunch. Um, uh, so there will be people, I am sure, who say, oh, but my practice is different, my patients are different, the studies didn't use patients that are similar to my patients, they didn't use the same technique that I used. You know, it's very easy to muddy the water. But, but let me come on to the environmental impact of these drugs, because I think that that can be a really good lever to seal the deal, if you like. So let me talk a little bit about that. So both of these drugs are um, halogenated hydrocarbons. They're both chlorofluorocarbons. And sevaflurane, uh, using sevaflurane for one hour is approximately the same as driving a car, a modern car, for 18 miles. But desflurane is about 20 times more potent a greenhouse gas than sevaflurane. It's to do with the arrangement of its of the fluoride atoms, fluoride ions, it makes it very resistant to degradation from UV in the upper atmosphere. So it persists for a long time and it's a very potent um, greenhouse gas. And what is more, it is not nearly 
as effective in a dose-for-dose -dose basis as sevoflurane. So desflurane is about 20 times more potent a greenhouse gas than sevoflurane. But in order to get the same effect with our patients, we have to use three times as much desflurane as sevoflurane. So to, to say that in a different way, if I took two identical patients and I gave them two identical anesthetics, one using sevoflurane and one using desflurane, the desflurane one would be approximately 70 times, seven zero, 70 times greater global warming effect than the sevoflurane anesthetic. And I come back to my earlier point about no clinical difference, no significant clinical difference between the two. So one of these drugs is 70 times more potent greenhouse gas than the other for no clinical difference. And what is even more important or perhaps relevant in the, in the old healthcare paradigm is that desflurane is more expensive than sevoflurane financially. So you might ask yourself, well, what are we doing? We're using this drug which, for which there's an easy alternative which costs more, which provides no clinical benefit. And I would answer, I don't know what we're doing. It's insanity. I mean, if it's such insanity, Frank, that this is the case, why do you think it's still going on in most trusts? And why do you think this is still such a popular anaesthetic gas? Do you think there's a way that we can sort of encourage the move away to be quicker um, in line with the sustainability guidance? Yes, I, I do. I think that, um, so the first thing to say is that use of desflurane is falling. Uh, it's falling year on year. Some hospitals have had um, huge success uh, and have, have stopped buying it. Um, other hospitals are slower to respond. I think that we're in this position because it is, it's not easy for it's not always easy for clinicians to know about the financial cost of the equipment that they use, let alone the environmental cost. And until we started to have good data about things like life cycle assessments, um, a lot of the in proposed environmental changes were based upon assumptions. Um, and it's it's good to have higher quality data on which to base our practice. And there's definitely opportunity to have much more of that data. Um, so I think I think that's one thing. Another thing is that uh, clinicians, by and large, um, during my career, have not really been uh, steered very strongly to use one medicine over another. It's been largely left down to clinician preference. And I think that there is a place for that. But I think that when the conditions are such that, uh, as is the case with desflurane, we're in this situation whereby I don't think that there can be a justification for using it, then I think that there is scope for much stronger guidance for clinicians to either use a medicine or not use a medicine. And it has to be said that certainly during my career, clinicians have not responded well to being, in inverted commas, told what to do. 
that's not the culture which we've allowed to, to develop, uh, which I think is a shame. Um, I would really like to see a culture in which we could have true dialogue between all interested parties, patients, doctors, um, hospital administrators, the finance team purchasing, so that we could all come to decisions that were based upon the best possible outcome for not only the patient in front of us, the individual patient in front of us, but also for society at large. I uh, I taunt some of my colleagues that still use desflurane in my hospital by telling them that in providing care for this patient in front of them, they're causing harm elsewhere. And when I first got interested in sustainability in healthcare, I used to talk about causing harm in a different place or in a different time. Uh, but actually, increasingly, over the last 15 or 20 years, it's become clear that that's no longer true. We're now causing harm here and now. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that's something that, that there is a benefit to having clinicians who actually are on board with this and are really keen on sustainability, actually putting some pressure on, on their colleagues, essentially? Yeah, um, it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a tricky one. Um, and my answer is, yes, I think it is really important for clinicians to hold one another to account um, because nobody else will. And, and I believe that it needs to be done. Um, and clin as we've agreed, clinicians don't like being told what to do. Um, but I think if they're going to take it from anyone, it's likely to be from another clinician. Yeah, this is my thought process here is a little bit of we're asking our estates colleagues um, to be the ones to have this conversation potentially. And maybe that's the wrong approach here. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. Um, and uh, I have certainly had some, um, how can I say it, uh, colourful exchanges of opinion with some of my colleagues. Um, but as I said, I think it's really important that somebody has those conversations. Um, having said that, let's be really clear, I do not think that it is right or fair to, to send the estates team in to speak to clinicians in a, in a way which is likely to be inflammatory. That's not fair on the estates team. It's not what they're employed to do. It's not what they're trained to do. It's not what they have any experience of. And it's a really unreasonable ask, I think. What I would really like to see is hospital, very senior management, you know, board level saying, OK, we know that sustainability is really important. We know that we have a huge footprint. We know that in providing healthcare, we're causing harm. And we're going to establish a set of values and principles which will filter through the whole organization, which we will lead by example to demonstrate. And we will hold all of our employees to account for their actions. And we expect that those actions will be in a way which is as environmentally friendly as possible.
That's a really interesting view. And obviously, the board level sustainability sponsor is quite a new concept to the NHS. And I know some trusts have really embraced this and have a huge engagement. But I imagine there are other trusts out there where this is still something that's in its infancy. Um, do you see that becoming potentially a dedicated role or uh, certainly something that takes up a lot of time for a board level sponsor? Um, I think it's a little bit difficult to answer that because, as you say, it is still so new. Um, I, I agree that I think there's a variation currently in the um, the uptake of that, um, although the um, NHS net carbon zero document uh, released on the 1st of October was very clear that there is an expectation that there will be a board level lead. And I'm in the process of um, working with the boards across West Yorkshire and Harrogate to to try and establish what that means and how those people might uh, might manage that responsibility to the best of their ability. Um, I th- as for how much time it will take and will it will it become dedicated? Um, I would love for it to be a dedicated post, um, and uh, but I realistically I think that that's probably unlikely. Um, at the moment, yeah. and not least because everybody who sits on all of the boards that I've ever seen uh, all carry several different portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and therefore, I think sustainability is likely to be another one uh, into the mix. Yeah. I think that it should not take a huge amount of time. I, so I think that one of the challenges here for me is that sustainability must not, cannot be a a small part of anybody's job. It cannot be something which, it's it's not something which is ever going to be fixed or finished. Uh, It's not something which is amenable to, um, okay, let's throw some resource at sustainability this year and then we won't have to worry about it. Um, it's not amenable to let's set up a task and finish group. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are really, truly going to transition to sustainability, it is going to take decades. It's never going to be finished. And it has to become absolutely integrated into the thought processes, not the work, but the thought processes of every single individual in every single thing that they ever do at home, at work, at play. It has to be as incorporated into our thought processes as keeping the law or as breathing. It needs to be that fundamental and that key to everything that we do. And so whilst I see appointing a board lead for sustainability as an important step, what I'm wary of is that boards or organisations or whatever say, oh, you know, I don't need to worry about sustainability because that's Bob's job. (laughs) Or, you know, Frank's going to look after sustainability across West Yorkshire and Harrogate. So I don't need to worry about it. Actually, quite the quite the contrary what I see the board level leads being first and foremost is an agitator. You know, those people have to be a stone in the shoe of their organization 
to force sustainability into every board paper, every decision, every thought, every conversation. Yeah, I think that's definitely the way this it has to move in future. We've all got to be thinking about it. And certainly within a trust, every team at least needs to have people thinking about this and, and challenging their colleagues and trying to move forward. I, sorry. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And what is more, increasingly, I would argue that if we are not giving due consideration to sustainability across all its elements, be that social or environmental, I would argue that increasingly that's that's negligent. Yeah, I think it's a strong word, but it does fit um, in terms of what damage can be done by not considering it. Absolutely. It is a strong word. And I, you know, I don't use it lightly. But if we don't take this seriously and we don't act now, it, you know, things are going to be very, very bad in our lifetimes. Yeah. So just to bring it back, because obviously that's quite a, a negative point in that we could end up in a situation where things are escalatingly bad. I think it would be really good just before we close to talk a little bit about sort of the here and now. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are probably within the estates departments at their trusts. And I think it would be really good to look at maybe some ideas for them as what they can do in the short term over the next sort of three to five years that their current green plan might be covering. Um, and what we would suggest they do to try and engage with the clinical side of the of the trust. Yeah. OK, um, the, I'm with you. Let's not finish on a on a depressing note. So I think that there is huge reason for hope and optimism in the sustainability agenda. I see an enormous sea change in interest in sustainability over the last two or three years. Suddenly, it's very acceptable to talk about sustainability. I see a lot of transition away from internal combustion engines. There's a lot of talk about um, heat pumps, uh, an awful lot of talk about active travel, um, particularly since lockdown. And I think that, you know, we can do this. Uh, I'm absolutely sure that we can do this. I think it's going to be very hard. What can estate teams do to motivate and and get their green plans going? I think try try and speak to the board and try and identify a a board level lead. That That would be key for me. I I would really recommend trying to talk to clinicians, put out something in the in your organization's weekly newsletter to say, hey, the estates team is has been uh, leading on sustainability for many years. And whether it's been called sustainability or not, they absolutely have been. They've done amazing work over decades, um, largely uh, unrecognized. But you could say. We're trying to do something about sustainability. If you're interested, come, please come and talk to us. We'd be particularly interested in talking to clinicians or we'd be t- particularly interested in talking to clinical staff because then you really might get nurses or physios or dieticians or, you know, um, whatever. I'm assuming that we're talking about hospital staff rather than um, general practice, for instance. Um, having And then speak to those people. And my my suggestion would be that you adopt a truly collaborative approach. We've got this problem. What can we do to help one another resolve it? And then be really careful, but equally firm 
that this is something which we're all going to have to do. We're all going to have to make changes about. And this is not something that I'm going to do for you or to you. It's something that we are going to do together because it's our problem. Yeah. And our solution, hopefully, um, as things move forward. And I think that's probably a good note to to end on, unless there's anything that you'd like to elaborate, Frank. Um, I don't think so, except to reiterate that we absolutely can do it. There is huge change happening. It's very exciting. And um, I'm never ceased to be um, to feel privileged that I can be a part of it. Yeah, it's it's been a really great journey over the last year or so seeing the NHS change, um, even from myself in the short term. Um, and I, I have to echo that it's great to be involved. All right, well, let's sign out for now from from us. Um, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Frank for joining us. And if anyone would like to listen to our previous podcasts, you can find them on inenco.com forward slash the Inenco podcast. Um, and if you need any further information or want to contact us about some of the things we've talked about today, please feel free to email us on inquiries at inenco.com. That's it from me for today. And I'm sure I'll speak to you all soon.